Welcome to my viewfinder. My name is David Yun. I'll be publishing a new episode every Friday where we discuss the philosophies around photography. I've decided to start adding projects and challenges at the end of each episode, so don't forget to check that out. Let me know how you're doing in the comment section, or you can reach me on Instagram at myviewfinderpodcast, on Twitter at mvfpodcast, or uh, just email me at dyunphoto at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying what you're hearing and you want to keep up with all the new ideas, hit that subscribe button, maybe even give me a like, and hopefully this will help you get out there and start taking more pictures. Do you have a favorite sound? Um, do I have a favorite sound? There's so many sounds out there. What, what I would like to hear, I would like to hear an owl, because if I heard an owl, I might see an owl, and I would love to see an owl. There have been, um, oh man, it's like probably four years ago in February in, in Confederation Park, there was an owl that I could hear at at, uh, in, it was in the late afternoon because you know it was winter and I uh, have a dog that I walk and I could always well if I heard it I knew it was around someplace and I could see its outline sometimes but I could never really see it that well but I would like to hear an owl so that I knew it was there and I would have a chance to maybe see it at some point. My Viewfinder is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. This week, our sponsorship message comes from one of our partner podcasts. Here's a clip to talk about one of our other shows, It's a Conspiracy. It's a Conspiracy! Alright! It's a Conspiracy is the podcast where we lay out the beliefs behind selected conspiracy theories, alternative accounts, legends, myths, and more. We do our best to present these without coloring them with our opinion until the end, where we let our feelings fly. We also do beer reviews, chat about geek culture, and whatever else strikes our fancy. Good times. And we're a part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. This is the second half of my chat with Donna Schwartz. We discuss her thoughts on whether there's a clear line that separates the art and hobby photographer. Her answer? In order to transcend snapshots, we need to focus on a theme or narrative around our images. We need to ask ourselves whether our work adds to the conversation surrounding our subject matter through innovation and asking new questions. That leads us to ask what photography's relationship is with culture, and even reality itself. As usual, I can't help myself but go into the abstract, but Donna's up for the challenge. Here are her thoughts on the state of our craft and her mission to educate us all in the language of photography. If I go back, one of the things you talked about at the dissertation period was your research into the idea of value between fine art and, and sort of candid photography. Did, did you come up with some kind of answer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was really, you know, what is it that defines fine art photography for practitioners? And I can't give you the full list off the top of my head because, you know, I didn't uh, like check it before we arranged to speak. But key elements had to do with, and some of these things surprised me, I guess, a little bit at the time. But over the years, they seem to be more and more, like, really clearly demonstrated in what I've 
encountered, but the um, focus on ideas was one of the key things that the photographers that I interviewed spoke to was that their work is about ideas. And in fact, one of the photographers gave me the example of uh, what does the light look like today? <laughs> and that would be an idea that he was pursuing. And that's the thing that um, I can say I remember the best at the moment, because truly I would have to go and find it and <laughs> uh, run through the findings. But I, I came up with a series of criteria that seemed to come from all of the photographers that I interviewed. And one of the things that was really funny, interesting funny, is that the amateur camera club photographers really felt like they were the artists because they weren't doing the work for money. They were doing it for love. And that to them made them the more virtuous practitioners. But yeah, another key thing that uh, was sort of um, specified was innovation. Innovation was important. Come up with new ideas. And for camera club photographers, the reverse was true. The work was incredibly consistent over time. And um, it was like a distinction that is made by folklorists about the difference between elite arts and folk arts. Folk arts being characterized by the recreation of a kind of virtuous norm again and again. So your particular chair that you make is always going to look pretty much the same, but it's going to be a virtuous recreation of that aesthetic norm. Whereas in elite arts, if you make the same chair over and over again, you know, that's, that's a problem. That's selling out. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. That's commercialized. So, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, can't ask you, of course, even if you had it handy to reveal all the findings of your dissertation. I mean, that sounds like a university course in and of itself. But yeah, well, uh, and, and you can you can look it up online. <laughs> but I do have a question. Um, so uh, you you created um, or you uh, you discovered, I guess, what you believed were certain key elements that would differentiate between, let's say, fine art or uh, amateur. Do you think that that's something that is intuitive to the people that can express themselves as fine artists, or is that something that's learnable? So if I were to read the conclusion of your research uh, into fine arts, if I mimicked these ideas, do you think something that I could become then or have an opportunity to become a fine artist? Or do you think there's something intuitive about the folks that are successful at that, that they just seem to approach projects in such a way? You know, this isn't about the work. It's about the sort of socio-cultural universe that surrounds it. So, no. I mean, if you looked at the different um, conclusions that I drew, and then you adopted those attitudes, that wouldn't make you a successful art photographer. It would only inform you about what the world of fine art photography was like in the 1980s in Philadelphia. And, you know, are, are there a lot of uh, commonalities between what people were espousing then and what they're espousing now? Absolutely. But would that make, help you inform your practice. I mean, the value of innovation, I think, has always been something that hovers over the art world, you know, that you have to introduce something new. And 
the focus on ideas, I see that in the work of successful photographers whose work I know historically, whose work I know uh, contemporaneously, whose work I know personally. Uh, for all those photographers, if when they are successful, it is because their work is about something, uh, an idea that they're successfully sort of bringing from concept into form. So that's not in the dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's experience. So with the idea of innovation, it's just because I'm a cynic about where we are today in modern art. Do you see... Has sort of digital media, social media, and this sort of so-called, I, I don't like using the word of democratization of some of these platforms, has it changed what innovation means? I mean, what I guess my thought here is um, how, does, how does one define innovation anymore? There, it's Maybe it can't be defined. I don't know. But you know, how do I know when I see something that's actually new you know, or if that's even a thing? I just everything kind of builds up from something else, I guess. But yeah, what does innovation then mean? Well, everything does build on something else. And, you know, innovation in and of itself is not a value. So, you know, that would be misplaced to think about doing something new only for the sake of doing something new. But I think, you know, asking new questions and introducing new ideas or returning to old ideas and reworking them in new ways. And you see that constantly in contemporary photography, where people are picking up on things that have been done in the past and repurposing them in ways that uh, create new meanings and create them in part built on our knowledge of, you know, what it is that they respond to, which is why it's so important to know your field, because that's a way that uh, you get to add knowledge and add value by building on, you know, like important ideas that have preceded you. But I was going to ask you what it is that concerns you about contemporary photography. And, you know, we could, you know, try and unpack that a bit. But, you know, it is an unprecedented moment in time in photography because more people than ever before are photographing and more people than ever before have uh, ways to disseminate the photographs that they make. And so what does that mean? How does it change the ecosystem? And clearly it does change it. But, you know, is that is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And how would you even judge that? Yeah, I mean, just personally, the the idea of judging it is definitely reflective of my own biases. I mean, I I really have no right to say that it's good or bad. I often say that it's bad because uh, I don't like it. But uh, in the long run, who knows, in hindsight, uh, like as you're describing it, I keep thinking in 20 years, if we look back at what I think is a garbage heap of uh, candid photography in, in, let's say, the iPhone culture, just to give it a, a one framework, you know, maybe it, it's a mass that actually either produces a new innovation or in its entirety becomes some, you know, reflection of where we're at as a culture right now. Per Personally, I I am struggling, I suppose, uh, with the idea of photography as a practice and its influence on culture. So, you know, whether it's actually demonstrating something that's real or enforcing its own bias and telling us what to think. Um, and those are very strong sort of uh, singular 
thoughts. But um, even with fine art photography, when, you know, uh, preceding the digital era, I have gotten caught. Uh, as I, I don't remember if it's on the recording, but when you brought up earlier that there's an advertising agency that has been hired to characterize an industry, uh, the health industry, a certain way to benefit, you know, their employers. I also worry about as a photographer. You know how much my images will reflect on me. How much of it is me telling somebody what to think? And of course, I think that'll depend on the individual in some sense. But photography has a particular power because it seems to render reality. Seems is the operative term, right? Yes. I mean, so my view is that the more people understand a medium, the more equipped they are to、uh, interpret its meanings. So you know, a lot of times when we have these、uh, complaints about everybody making photographs, you know, the sort of counterstatement is, well, are writers asking everybody to to put down their their keyboards and their pens and pencils and to never write words? Because of course we all write words. And we all use language,、um, you know, our spoken word artists telling everybody to shut up because you can't use words because they're my thing.、Uh, so, you know, I think the same kind of view should、uh, shape our responses to many, many people making photographs. And that is that, you know, the better you understand photography, the more you're going to be able to respond to the photographs that you see. And, you know, it's like. Somebody makes a picture of a sunset, and the colors don't match what they saw. And then they realize, oh, there must be some knowledge that I don't have, or this camera that I use sucks. You know, it's probably the technology that failed, not me. Or, you know, I make a picture of something, and oh, the subject that I was focusing on is really tiny in the frame, and how come it's not bigger? And we don't realize that human vision is different from camera vision, and that you know we pay attention to things, and everything else can fall away because our focus of attention is making that more salient in our you know our interpretation of what we've just seen. And cameras don't do that. Photographers have to make the camera do it. So you know, when people start realizing that, then they can start putting these things together.、Um, I remember I actually、uh, got to go to a political rally for Obama when he visited、uh, Minneapolis when he was running in 2008, and I saw the way they set up. The space, and this was true for some other media event that I remember going to. The、uh, place where、uh, the part of the where Obama stood was very, very far away from where all the people were that you see behind him, and the media were very far away from him. On the opposite side, and so all of those photographers were using long lenses, and that collapsed the space. So that meant that all the people behind him looked like they were right close behind him. And you know, seeing that, I understood in a way that you know, I suppose I could have understood if I were paying attention at other times that that's a totally constructed image of that environment and of those interactions. So those people are not close at all; they're pretty far away. But the camera renders them close because the photographers are using long lenses, and they're using long lenses 
in part because they've been positioned in such a way that they have to. So, you know, the image that you get is a construction and it's a construction that is, you know, I mean, we'd have to look into the the practices of campaigns and setting up rallies and how they position different participants in those rallies and whether or not, and I'm assuming it's conscious that they have like set things up in such a way that a certain image is produced just by necessity uh, or as a consequence of the way that things have been staged. So, you know, where is the reality there? Um, So, you know, as you understand the way that pictures are made, as you understand the technology, as you understand what it can and can't do and what you need to do to get what you are hoping to get, that's a benefit for us all, for people to have more knowledge. It's like if you didn't know grammar and you could never write a coherent sentence or speak one, that would be a problem, right? You wouldn't function. And, you know, um, one of the things that was foundational to my uh, academic work was is, was, and still is training people to understand that those tools are essential for our ability to function in a complex culture where pictures do a lot of the speaking. And if, you know, if we don't know how to take them apart and understand, then, you know, we're just at their mercy or at the the mercy of the makers of those pictures. So, you know, that kind of literacy uh, is important. So people will say, you know, like a photograph is universal. Everybody understands it. And it's like, "Mm -mm, no, I'm sorry. You missed the brief because, in fact, um, they're not simple at all. And it's important to understand how they're constructed and uh, why and by whom. This this leads just the cynical thought of whether people will be willing to get that information or that education and become literate and whether it's important that let's say the average mass um, learns to see uh, to interpret what they see critically or if it's we get back to this I don't know if aristocracy is the right word but we have uh, in an educated elite that has to disseminate this context interpreted for people um, but I yeah, we, we see how well that works, right? <laughs> that doesn't work. So Is there an alternative, though? I mean, I, I, like, I, again, I don't know if it's on the recording, but I can't be on Twitter for this reason because there, you don't have to verify anything. You don't have to take responsibility for anything, but you can put information, uh, quote unquote, you can put information wherever you want. And, uh, and it might be immature to blame that as the poison in the well, but I. Uh, it frightens me. It overwhelms me often where um, even with, uh, yeah, whether it's political phot- photography or advertising photography or even art photography, I, I get caught up in that uh, for sure. I, the more I learn about this as a craft and as a technical thing, the more I can spot or I believe, like you brought up, even without knowing the intentionality of building these uh, images for the Obama rally. I did read a book where they're talking about, I think Obama 2008 was the first time they did data mining to build their um, political strategy. And they, they were like, I think the first time they used internet data. Uh, and we, of course, see what happened after as it evolved for the previous president. That stuff is, is makes me very cynical. Maybe it shouldn't, but I, I'm caught there. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm an educator and, 
you know, that's something that I've devoted my career to is to uh, help my students develop visual literacy and critical thinking skills. But, you know, I'm not alone in what I'm doing. And, you know, look at you, you're right there, you know, doing this podcast and talking to a lot of different people to disseminate uh, a lot of different ideas. So, you know, as long as people are engaged and open to learning. Learning comes from lots of different places. It doesn't just happen in schools, obviously. It happens in everyday life and it happens through experience. And, um, you know, um, I think being cynical isn't super helpful. Uh, It leads us to brood and uh, retreat. And, and you're not even doing that. Well, you might be brooding. I can't speak to that, but you're not retreating because, you know, here we are having this conversation. So, um, you know, when you take out your, your iPhone and you photograph your meal and you think about how you're going to frame it and what the light looks like and all of that, and you're not a professional photographer, but you still care about how people who are on uh, your Facebook friends or on your Instagram feed, you've learned something about uh, photography. And, you know, you, you're getting some grasp of the grammar And you may then look at an advertisement for some food product or for a restaurant or something and really appreciate the work that went into making that picture. So, you know, I think it's I think it's a good thing. And I'm not going to ask you to put down your pencil and never (laughs) write another sentence or speak to anyone because you don't have the right to use words. And it will somehow diminish the quality of words that I use if you use them too. Let me brood on that. I will uh, get back to you on that. You do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just quickly, going back um, both to the uh, small town um, anecdote, the research, and then uh, also in the kitchen, um, you brought up the word glue. So conceptually, what what was it that brought these images together? I mean, just maybe as a closing outro, um, you've obviously have a research-minded brain process. You've uh, started cataloging images, often they can either be confined by a beginning shot list or some type of structure. But in the end, you create, let's say, a narrative or, or story out of it that will illustrate some point, be it a for, like a opening conclusion or something that's developed through the process. What, what is the glue? What is, it, is there a singular thing that can connect a series of images together? You know, how do you make that into a statement as opposed to just, let's say, street photography and, and taking... I think I have 250,000 actuations on my camera currently. So, um, you know, it's just uh, run and gun or spray and pray, whatever they used to say. Um, um, what is it that binds, binds things together? Well, I mean, sometimes, so let's say we're talking about what you've shot and, you know, you, you're a street photographer and you're out photographing the things that catch your eye, right? And then, so I'm an advocate for making prints because it's much harder to move things around on a screen. So then when I teach um, my projects class, I show students the over 300 little four by six prints that I made for that kitchen project. 
as I was editing the book and trying to figure out how it could work in a in a longer sequence. And and this is a lot like ethnographic research, in fact, uh, because when you have field notes, you're going through those field notes and you're coding them for things that recur. Uh, according to particular kinds of categories. So if you were going through your photographs, you've printed your four by six images because you know what they look like bigger, so you don't really actually need to have them any bigger than that. Uh, and you, you, you like throw them all over your floor, right? Which is the biggest surface you have, right? <laughs> it's like your table would be way too small. So you just lay them out on the floor. And in fact, when I was doing the kitchen book, um, I... I did it on the dining room table, which was too small. But then uh, for the final edit, the curator who was writing the introduction to the book uh, invited me to come to her house uh, in Rochester. She was a curator at the George Eastman Museum at the time. And we took all the closet doors off their hinges <laughs> and laid them on um, sawhorses so that there was a really, 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 really long surface to um, lay out the images on so I could show her the edit that I had and see what you know she might add to it. But you go through and you're looking for those things that create a path through the work. And they all generally will come together depending, you know, if you have a kind of sort of disciplined vision that you bring to making the photographs in the first place, the things that you're looking for, the things that you're going after, because you are who you are, and the, the things that you encounter interest you in particular ways that other people would not find interesting. So the photographs that you make are not going to be the same as photographs that I make, because I'm going to be drawn to different things. So you go through them and you start looking at, well, what was I seeing here? And what is the thread? And you might not know to start with, but as you work with the images and you shuffle them and reshuffle them and you look at either their formal qualities or the color or the subject matter, you know, you might not have a clue until you've worked with them. Like I said, reshuffled the deck and it might then come to you the glue may emerge out of that process of working with the material itself. So different people have different work styles and work strategies. Everybody at some point has to edit and sequence. Uh, even if it's just for a portfolio of 20 images, you still have to edit and sequence. So, you know, there's always this process of looking again, letting it sit. You know, um, I'm a big advocate for putting things out and then just leaving them, coming back to them, looking at them, and then I'll rearrange and uh, reconsider how they, how they fall together. So sometimes it's that kind of organic process. And like I said, field notes in ethnography are, are like that as well, where, you know, and people talk about, well, there's no correspondence between making art and making research. It's like, Actually, it's they're both creative activities that um, sometimes are journeys all uh, by themselves. That you have questions in mind, you go out and you try to answer them. Uh, certain things attract you, certain things don't. And at the end of the day, you know your responsibility in a way is to make sense of it all. 
it's not your responsibility if you don't need to share it with anybody then who cares you know it can be what it is but if you want someone to look and engage with you then it is i think it's your responsibility then to um, use that material to say something and you may not know what you're going to say in the beginning i sure didn't know what i was going to say in the farm project uh, you know, I was well into it and freaking out because it's like, oh my God, I've got all these photographs, but what are they about? You know, what have I got here? What have I done? <laughs> and, you know, eventually it came to me, but it took time. I'm like processing. I feel like an old computer. Yeah, just trying to catch up, buffering. My uh, old computer is actually starting to make clicking noises now when I use it. So I kind of feel the same way. Um <laughs> Uh, thank you. I think that's awesome. I also think that's a great place to wrap up before this turns into a six. I feel like we could probably, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like I could talk to you for six hours and uh, keep gleaning, stealing information from you. So, no, it's uh, not called stealing. <laughs> it's called sharing. I, uh, number one, I mean, I, I'll, I just want to say thank you for spending time with me. I, uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Oh, just quickly, I just started smiling because I love, I wish I could screen cap it, that you just took a sip from a mug that's uh, made out of a lens. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, awesome. It's plastic. It's <laughs> great. It's, uh... You can buy these at many museums of photography. I do that to amuse my students. I don't, you know, like announce it or anything. Just pops up on the screen. Yeah, and one of them noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's too busy uh, writing down notes. Yeah. Well, thank you again. You're welcome. Okay, so there you have it. What do you think about this idea of education and cultural conversation through photography? Whether our passion is coffee cups or world hunger, we need to be aware of our picture's ability to share our beliefs with other people. We also need to ask whether the manner in which we show our work is adding to a growing conversation, or if it's just creating another echo chamber. I'm looking at you, Twitter. I've been looking at my pictures. There is a particular thread over the years, and that uh, seems to be the feeling of a loss of control over my life. That does coincide with many life changes over the last five years, you know, parenthood, sobriety, entrepreneurship, uh, the pursuit of art, but most immediately, my recent epilepsy diagnosis. Can I shape this awareness now into a story for an audience to participate with? Am I even ready to share something with an audience? Is my work engaging and personal enough to connect with you? I have no idea. But what about you? Do you have something that you're trying to articulate with your work? Are you ready to engage in that conversation with your audience? If you need a starting point, it was suggested to me uh, to try a mind map or this nodal way of thinking. Uh, maybe you can try that. Start with your general idea in the center of a piece of paper and just start branching out ideas and themes. It took me probably 10 tries before I suddenly broke out with the main branch of my struggles with epilepsy. There's great inspiration and shape there. Now, whether I have something to say now or 30 years from today, only time will tell, but I definitely have found some direction. And I hope you find yours too. All right, last one. Uh, if you could tell the world one thing, what would it be? Be kind. This episode of My Viewfinder is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, 
For 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.